Tonight's message will be sermon number 13 in the series on the subject of infant salvation. And the title this evening is that of the baptismal regeneration theory. Now in our last message we examined the evangelical Arminian's view of infant salvation, which he based upon the idea of a universal atonement. In tonight's message, we will examine the sacramental Arminian's view of infant salvation, which he bases upon his understanding of baptismal regeneration. A word of explanation between these two. I use two adjectives to describe the Arminian position. One is an evangelical Arminian, and the other is a sacramental Arminian. What is the difference, Pastor? An evangelical Arminian believes that the instrumental cause of a person's salvation is repentance, faith, and evangelical obedience. That is, it is something which is internal and is directly between he and God. The sacramental Arminian believes that one's, that the instrumental cause of a person's salvation is bound up in the sacraments of the church so that one is put right with God only as he comes in contact with the sacraments or the ordinances of the church. And that is particularly the one true church, the Roman Catholic Church, for that is the church which claims to be the only true representative of Christ upon the earth. Now, the evangelical Arminian does not believe in sacramental grace. They believe that one receives grace by performing conditions of repentance, faith, and evangelical obedience. The sacramental Arminian, rather, then believes that a person receives grace through the sacraments. Did I say that right? Did I say evangelical Arminians hold to that you receive grace, or did I put the word sacramental in there? I hope I don't remember what I said, but again, we'll clarify it. The evangelical Arminian believes that a person receives grace upon conditions of repentance, faith, and evangelical obedience. The sacramental Arminian believes that a person receives grace when they come in contact with the sacraments of the church. Now, that's the distinction between the two. Now, both these Arminian systems hold to the teaching of original sin and its effects upon God and man. That being, the judicial wrath of God has fallen upon man, and man is depraved and sinful in his nature. Both of these systems affirm that. But they differ as to when God's judicial wrath is removed from the sinner. The evangelical Arminian says God's judicial wrath is removed from the sinner at his birth by the application of a universal, unconditional measure of grace. The sacramental Arminian says no. God's judicial wrath is not removed from the sinner until the person receives the sacrament of baptism. So that the evangelical Arminian says the moment the baby is born or has life, then there is an application of the atonement so that it is removed from the judicial wrath of God. 
The Roman Catholic Church or the sacramental Arminian says this, no, that is not true, that God's judicial wrath remains upon the infant until it is baptized. And at that time it comes in contact with grace and original sin is dealt with and forgiven so that the judicial wrath is lifted when baptism occurs. Now throughout the history of fallen man there has been a natural opposition in the human heart to the divine method of saving sinners. God has a way of saving sinners and it's designed for his glory And throughout the history of mankind, there has been a natural tendency to oppose God's method of dealing with sinners and saving them. Rather than embracing God's method, which humbles or humbles human pride, there is a natural tendency on the part of fallen man to view God's plan of of redemption in such a way so as to give some or all of the credit to mankind. Now, God's plan of salvation is by grace through faith, is it not? Excuse me just a moment. Why is that the case? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. There's the reason. But there's ever a tendency on the part of men to work away from that plan of redemption because it humbles human pride. And there's always a tendency to allow a system of salvation which will give mankind some credit and allow him a means of boasting in some way as to what he has done. And these, this tendency to oppose God's plan of salvation has appeared in two historical forms. And they are, listen carefully, there's a tendency to rely upon either what men are, have done, or can do. And that is equated with the system known as works or human merit. Rather than bowing to God's sovereign mercy, In the salvation of a sinner, there is a tendency on the part of fallen men to rely upon what men are, what they have done, or what they are capable of doing. And that is the system known as works. But there's another tendency which has arisen throughout the history of God's dealings with sinners, and that is the tendency to rely upon other men to mediate grace through external rituals or ordinances, and that is known as sacramental grace. The one tendency of works or human merit seeks the blessings of religion for one's own glory and credit, so they can boast. The tendency of the sacramental system is to seek the blessings of religion through priestly representation. If the tendency of works or human merits is successful, then the result is invariably self-dependence and self-glory. And you see this in the Pharisee. I thank God that I am not as other men. Why? I fast, I tithe, I do this. 
so he would draw attention to his own acts and then rest in them. His mouth was not shut. He was never brought under the power of God's plan of salvation. But on the other hand, if the other tendency of sacramental grace is successful, the result is that then we could live by sight rather than by faith. How is that the case? Rather than to have to have faith in a person and his work whom I have never seen, all I would have to do was to be to look at that priest, to look at that water, and to look at that elements in the mass or the supper, and see that that is my actual salvation, so then I could live by sight and not by faith. I could go to the Mass on Sunday and see the one who is securing my blessing. I could see the elements which are securing my blessing. So wherever this tendency exists, whether it be to claim the blessings of God because of who I am, or to give the glory to someone or something that I can see, these two systems throughout human history have been substituted in the place of God's plan of salvation by grace through faith. Are you saved? Now the fallen man's human sinful heart will oppose God's method of dealing with sinners. And he'll do it either by claiming glory for himself or giving glory to a person or a ritual which he can see for himself. Now I would like to then begin with those words of introduction to say also who are the representatives of present day sacramentarianism. That is, those who hold to salvation through the sacraments or the ordinances of the church. The prominent one is that of the Roman Catholic Church. The second representative is the Greek Orthodox Church, the eastern branch of the Catholic Church. And then the third representative of this view is the Anglican Church or the Church of England. The fourth is the Episcopal Church here in America, which is nothing but the Church of England over here in the United States. They can't call it the Anglican Church. So when they have their missionaries come over here, then they call them Episcopalians. Then there are also certain large segments of the Lutheran Church, which teach grace administered through the sacraments. And then finally, the group which is known as the Campbellite, also teach sacramental grace. Our study tonight, as it relates to infant salvation, will be confined primarily to the position held by the Roman Catholic Church, for they most clearly state their beliefs, particularly as it relates to infant salvation. I want to clarify what we mean by a sacrament and sacramental grace. What is a sacramentarian? Now listen carefully. The Roman Catholic Church affirms this, that God has deposited all saving grace in the sacraments of the church or the ordinances of the church. So that as we could say of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he was God incarnated 
in the flesh, so that the Roman church says that the spirit of grace in the Holy Spirit is insacramented in the sacraments of the church. So that as God became man in the flesh, the grace of God is insacramented into a physical object. So that God has deposited all of his grace in physical sacraments in the church. And that unless someone comes in contact with those physical sacraments, they can in no way receive the grace of God. Now with respect to this, I want to then bring out the Roman position then affirms that baptism is what starts the grace of God flowing to the individual. So that this is the first sacrament that a person must come in contact with before they can ever have the Christian life started. Now when did your Christian life start? When did it start? If you are a knowledgeable Christian, you say, well, it started when I was regenerated in Christ Jesus, when I was born again. And how did you become conscious of that? You repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how did you make that known before men? In the waters of baptism. So that you would not dare say as a knowledgeable Christian that my Christian life began the moment I was baptized. That's why I always cringe a little bit when I ask a person, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, uh, I was baptized on such and such a date. Now they're not a Roman Catholic, but they still equate baptism with the beginning of their Christian life. They do not realize it, but they're believing the same thing that Rome does when they do that. But Roman Catholicism maintains that baptism is the origin of grace or of Christian life. And therefore, a person does not receive forgiveness of sins until they are baptized. So that no infant or adult can be saved without baptism. No infant or adult can be saved without baptism. Baptism confers the merits of Christ's death so as to remove the judicial wrath of God, and it also confers the influence of the Holy Spirit to deal with man's depraved nature. That is what Rome teaches. So that if one receives through baptism the merits of Christ's death to remove them from the wrath of God, and the influence of the Holy Spirit to begin the work of sanctifying grace upon the human nature, then here are some of the blessings which baptism confers to that individual. Number one, it, it secures the remission of the penalty of sin. Number two, it cleanses from inherent inbred corruption. Number three, it secures the infusion of sanctifying grace. Four, it unites to Christ. 
Number five, it impresses upon the soul a heavenly character. And number six, it opens the door for entrance into heaven. So that no one then can be right with God, can be saved, unless they come in contact with the waters of baptism. Now I want to read this to you to verify that this is not some misrepresentation. I read to you from the catechism, from the council, the Roman Catholic Council of Trident. Here it states these words. It follows that baptism may be accurately defined to be the sacrament of regeneration by water in the word. For by nature we are born from Adam children of wrath, but by baptism we are regenerated in Christ children of mercy. Now do you see the distinction? They affirm original sin. In Adam... We all died. But it is not until a person is baptized that we receive life. Now remember, the evangelical Arminian says that the judicial wrath of God is lifted from every infant the moment they're born by an unconditional application of the atonement. But the sacramentarian says, no, life begins in baptism. I go on to read... Another statement as it relates to our subject, quoting from the same Catholic confession. For as no other means of salvation remains for infant children except baptism, it is easy to comprehend the enormity of the guilt under which they lay themselves who suffer them, that is the children, to be deprived of the grace of the sacrament longer than necessity requires. That is, there's a great enormous guilt that must be placed upon any parent, upon any adult, who would delay having their child baptized in that. That's the only way that salvation can occur for infant children. One Catholic theologian by the name of Bellaman states this, quote, The church has always believed that infants perish if they depart this life without baptism. For although little children fail of baptism without any fault of their own, yet they do not perish without their own fault since they have original sin. So you see, we agree with the Roman Catholic when we affirm that the Bible teaches that all are born in trespasses and sin. But we disagree with the Roman Catholic theologian as to when grace is imparted. The Roman Catholic position is that grace is imparted through baptism. Therefore, if any being who is comes into this world with original sin and its effect, dies without baptism, then the church of Rome says that individual must perish because they did perish for original sin. Even though that they had not the chance to be baptized and it was not their own fault for not being baptized as an infant, yet they must perish because they are born with original sin.
I hope that you see from reading that statement that the Roman Catholic Church is right on this point of holding to original sin. You cannot deny that that is taught in the Scriptures without just cutting out whole bodies of Scripture themselves. For example, we read a little bit further from one author. It is an intricate portion of the sacramental scheme that all men fell in Adam and have somehow inherited a sinful nature so that all infants included need regenerated in order to be admitted unto the blessings of heaven. Now, do you agree with that? Well, certainly you should. If you believe that all men fell in Adam and that all inherit some type of a sinful nature, then you must believe that a man must be born again before he can enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the question is, is he born again by a sovereign act of God upon his nature, which is grace, or has God imparted his grace to a Roman priest who communicates that grace through the sacrament of baptism. When does regeneration occur? And this is what we are discussing tonight. Now, if you believe that, of course, then you must come to this inescapable conclusion, which the Roman Catholics have come to, that unbaptized infants cannot be admitted to heaven. They cannot go there because they have never received the grace of God and they have inherited a sinful nature. I interject something here. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. Maybe you've even encountered it. It goes on all the time. It doesn't bother me, but I wouldn't be surprised that at least two of my children have not been baptized Roman Catholics. You say, Brother Gables, what on earth are you talking about? Two of my children were born in Roman Catholic hospitals. It is a relatively common practice, unknown to Protestant parents, for the authorities of those hospitals to have the priest come by and baptize the infant. Unknown to the Protestant parents. It would not surprise me at all if my children did not have Roman Catholic baptism. Now, why would they do that? Why wouldn't you, if you believed that an infant cannot go to heaven unless it is baptized and that by the authority of the Church of Rome? It would be a cruel thing if you had the means of their salvation in your hands and you did not administer that to that child. Because they require no consciousness on the part of the recipient of baptism to understand what's going on. Because grace begins in the subconscious. And that's what we we agree with. That the grace of God in the new birth begins in the subconscious. Of which we become conscious and aware of it through acts of repentance and faith in Christ. Which we confess before men in baptism. Now, when the Roman Catholic comes to such a painful conclusion as to state that all infants which die in infancy unbaptized must perish, 
then they have to sort of back up because that causes most people to recoil against such a teaching. How could a little infant perish under the judicial wrath of God and know what it was perishing for if it died unbaptized? And so there seems to be a problem with how do you harmonize the justice of God with this system of infant damnation or infants perishing without being baptized. But the Roman Catholic Church is always equal to whatever problem it encounters. Why do you say that, Brother Jim? Because I, as a minister of God, am bound to this book to come up with the conclusions of the revelation of God to men. I cannot step out of the teachings of this book. But that isn't the case with the Roman Catholic Church. They have a continuing apostleship in which God is continually supposedly revealing new revelations to them which bear equal authority with what is being written in this book. So that if they come up with a thorny question, how can God be just and punish a baby which is, which dies unbaptized? then here is the way in which that they approach it. They have invented the view of compartments in the unseen world which are midway between heaven and hell. That is, after a person dies in the unseen world, there are different compartments which the Roman Catholic Church has come up with whereby these people are sent. These compartments are not heaven or hell, they're in between. For example, we might describe it in this fashion. View it as concurrent circles, one enlarging around the other. In the center circle is the place called hell. It is the place where positive punishment is inflicted. Then the next circle is that of the place for limbo, or the word is a Latin word meaning border. How many of you are familiar with the borderland? You watched enough cowboy movies where you can say if we can just make it across the border. Or my land, my property borders on my neighbors. All right? Here we have hell, then we have another state or another land bordering hell. And that is the place where unbaptized adults go to who never ever learned that they needed to be baptized. That's sort of nice for Rome to invent a place like that. That is, if you lived and died and never ever heard that you ought to be baptized, then you can't go to heaven but you won't go to hell. You'll go to a place of limbo for adults. Then there is another border, another circle, further away from hell and closer to heaven, but not in heaven, and that's called limbo for infants. That is a place where little babies go to who died as infants unbaptized. This place is not a place of blessing like heaven, but it is not a place of positive, painful consciousness like hell. 
and therefore infants go to that place. Then there is another circle bridging out from the center line of hell, and that is the borderland called purgatory. And there all baptized Catholics go to have remaining sin purged from them at the time of their death. That is, they cannot go directly into the presence of God if they have some sin left. If they're not yet perfect, then they must go to purgatory where they spend a period of time of having their sins purged through some type of punishment. They are relieved from that state by prayers of the saints and donations to the church by friends and relatives. And then the final circle, which encircles all of these other places, is heaven itself. And that's where the faithful end up at. You might be able to die as an infant a moment after your baptism and go right into heaven. You might be able to live such a perfect life of commitment that upon your death you go right into heaven. Now visualize in your mind these various compartments. Heaven, a place of absolute blessedness. The center circle, hell, a place of absolute torment and suffering. Who goes to hell? Only the people who willfully reject Baptism as administered by the Roman Catholic Church. That's where you and I are headed. That's where you and I are headed. That's where we are consigned by the Church of Rome. We refuse to be baptized by a priest. And we refuse to have our children baptized. Then let us be anathema. That is the concurrence of the church of Rome. We shall suffer in hell because we knowingly rejected the grace of God which is administered through the church of Rome through baptism. That's the people who will be in hell. The heathen who never heard about baptism and they die without baptism, they don't go to the same place we're going to. They go to an adult limbo, a borderland. The infant that dies without baptism goes to another infant place of limbo. Not a place of happiness, not a place of punishment, just a place of neutrality to spend eternity. Then the devout Catholic who dies yet with sins upon his life must go to purgatory. And the sinless Catholic who dies having received all the sacraments of the church then goes immediately into the presence of God. The Church of Rome has an adequate solution baptized. They clearly state that they do not enter heaven, but they can assign them to hell because that would just be too much for their people to be able to swallow, so they develop an intermediate state at borderland for them to spend eternity in. It is interesting in studying the Protestant Reformation in which that men in the Roman Catholic Church began to differ with the teachings of Rome in the 15th and 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. And these reformers like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox, as they began to set out to refute the teachings of the church, that while they did a great service to the cause of Christianity 
and eventually either lost their life or were excommunicated by the Church of Rome. It is interesting to observe that the Protestant reformers themselves never did ever develop, though, a clear view of infant salvation. And this is why this is so quiet in regard to this subject. Why you can't find information by the reformers on this subject. Why? Because of the influence upon them of the doctrine of sacramental grace. You'd have to grow up in the church of Rome to really know how much influence the doctrine of sacramental grace has upon a person. And the reformers themselves never completely escaped the influence of sacramental grace. Therefore, in none of their writings, Luther, Calvin, any of them, do they give us a clear statement regarding infant salvation. St. Augustine, who lived a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation, was a Roman Catholic, and he died a Roman Catholic. But he came to a clear understanding of the doctrines of salvation by grace and became known in his system as Augustinianism, which Calvin later took as a Roman Catholic and refined it. But Augustine never did escape the matter that grace, while it is sovereign, and that God has an election of grace, that grace is imparted to the elect through the sacraments. He never did escape that. So that if you read St. Augustine's writings, you'll rejoice in the great clarity on one page in which he magnifies the sovereign grace of God in saving his people. And then on the next page, right next to it, he'll make some bumbling statement about an infant dying without baptism shall perish. How do you account for that, Pastor? Because they never completely were able to divest themselves of this teaching of sacramental grace. You see, you can be a Calvinist if you understand that term and still hold to sacramental grace. There are Roman Catholics who are Augustinian today. But they hold the sovereignty of God in grace. Only the elect are going to be saved, but they shall all be saved as they come in contact with the grace of God in baptism and the sacraments of the church. I thank God that in our day we have been enabled to divest ourselves completely as a group of people here tonight from all forms of sacramentarianism to be able to see that there is then an answer to this question of infant salvation. Now I say that to help you to understand that you'll not go to a bookstore and pick up a book by any reformer in the Protestant Reformation and rarely will you find anything said today about infant salvation if you're coming at it from either a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, whatever groups came out of the Protestant Reformation because their influence of sacramental grace. <clears throat> now then, in moving on, I ask this question. What is a sacrament? What is a sacrament? I've used that term. It's time to answer it. Now, as Baptists, 
we prefer the term ordinance rather than sacrament. Why do you suppose Baptists prefer that? Because of the connotation which Rome has placed upon a sacrament. A sacrament as held by Rome is an instrumental means of imparting the grace of God. We say no, there are not sacraments. God left to the church ordinances. Two ordinances primarily in symbolic form of the gospel and they being baptism and what's the other? The Lord's Supper. The Church of Rome has about five more which one must partake of, including marriage and last rites and several others. What then do we mean as Baptists by an ordinance or a sacrament, if you want to continue to use that term? We mean by this simple definition that an ordinance is an external sign or symbol of inward grace. Say it again, Pastor. By an ordinance or a sacrament, we understand it to mean the Bible to teach that it is an external, visible sign or symbol of an internal, inward work of grace. So that we do not hold that baptism imparts grace, but baptism symbolizes what grace does internally within the nature. We do not hold that the supper imparts grace, but that it is a memorial or a symbol of the blood of Christ and of his broken body in the gospel. And that baptism portrays the death burial, and resurrection of Christ in the gospel. So that we hold that baptism is an external sign or symbol of an inward grace. That being the case, it is clear to us then as Baptists that the New Testament presupposes spiritual discernment on the part of the recipient to be able to confess the meaning of the symbolism. That is, that no one then should be baptized who cannot explain what that act is representing or symbolizing. Since it symbolizes inward grace, which has made us conscious of our need of the gospel, wherein through repentance and faith we lay hold upon the mercy of forgiveness of sin and cleansing of sin in the gospel, and we understand that, then no one should be baptized who cannot confess that consciously and understand its meaning. And therefore, we then shy completely away from baptizing infants or adults, for that matter, who cannot give evidence that they are in a saving union with Christ. For we do not hold that baptism starts one's union with Christ, but that it is an external expression that one is already in union with Christ. So that while a baby cannot confess that, a baby cannot give any evidence of understanding if it was immersed or sprinkled, whatever. The Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, sprinkles 
the Greek Orthodox Church, the eastern branch of Catholicism, when it split between the western branch, Rome, and the eastern branch, the eastern branch immerses. How many of you knew that? They immerse their babies. They immerse their adults. But the Roman Church sprinkles. But we affirm that no person, adult or infant, should be baptized until they can confess with the mouth a saving experience with the Lord Jesus Christ in His grace. Thus, experimental repentance and faith are set forth in the New Testament as prerequisites to baptism. For example, Acts chapter 2. Please turn there for a moment. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Here is the day of Pentecost. Peter has preached the gospel. The Spirit has done his work of conviction to make the sinners conscious of a need. And now then they cry out unto the gospel messenger... Men and brethren, what must we do? We're conscious that we have a need. Now in Acts chapter 2 and verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? From a Calvinistic understanding of the Scriptures, we believe that life has already begun. And they are conscious of a need. So that, in verse 38, the gospel preacher tells them what they now need to do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that repentance was to be confessed before baptism was to be administered. Repentance is a pre-requirement to baptism. An infant cannot confess their repentance toward men. And if an adult refuses or fails to confess their repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, they also are not genuine candidates for water baptism. Now look on over in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8. Here we have repentance brought out in chapter 2. Acts chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 7. I believe it, no, chapter 8. Find it here in a moment. Yes, the Ethiopian eunuch. And verse uh, 35, the gospel has been preached unto the eunuch. Time won't allow us to deal with that, dealing with the passage in Isaiah chapter 53. Verse 55, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him who? Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is what? Here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now how would you answer that if you were a Roman Catholic? You wouldn't even try to answer. You'd get him into the water just as quick as he can before his heart started beating, stopped beating. 
Because it's in when he comes in contact with our water, that's when life begins for him, according to the Roman view. But now the eunuch has asked a question. Philip, I understand the gospel now. And incidentally, Philip must have also explained to him baptism, or else he'd never raised a question. Here's a pool of water. Why can't I now be baptized? What's hindering me from being baptized? What's the prerequisite here? Now look at Philip's answer, verse 37. And Philip said, If thou believest with what? All thine heart thou mayest. Now what did the fellow do? Look at his confession. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the what? the Son of God, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he what? Baptized him. Now what was the pre-requirement before Philip would administer water baptism, before he would administer the ordinance? Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Peter require before he administered baptism on the day of Pentecost? Genuine conviction of sin, confession of sin, that is done in both repentance and faith. These are not two separate acts, which one's performed over here and one's performed over here. They're two sides of one coin, repentance and faith. They go together like Siamese twins. Wherever you find truly the one, you find the other. You can't have one without the other. I will not go to a person and place my faith in that person unless I can trust him. Hmm? Can you trust the Lord Jesus Christ tonight for the salvation of your soul? You will not go to him unless you believe he's a good person. Unless he can be depended upon to handle your case. But when I go to him, trusting him now in saving faith, I'm going to him confessing that I've sinned against him. The two are found together. And both repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ comprised the apostolic preaching of the gospel. And when individuals were willing to confess and identify with Christ with their mouth, then they were administered the ordinance of baptism. So what are we saying then? Baptism is not that act which starts the grace of God flowing. It is an external sign or symbol that the grace of God has already begun to flow inwardly and internal within the human nature. And the human nature has become conscious of it, and they express that consciousness and repentance and faith. Now then, those people and those people only are candidates for believers' baptism. There is... In the Bible, but one gospel. And that gospel is salvation by grace through faith. But that gospel comes to men in two forms. What are they, Brother Jim? Two forms to the gospel. Now listen carefully. The gospel comes to men in word and Symbol or ordinance. How did you hear about the Lord Jesus Christ? You heard it in one of two ways. 
And to those who I'm speaking to tonight, you've heard about it both ways. You heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel message like I'm doing this evening. And you also heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through the ordinances which he's left to his church, the symbol and the sign of the gospel. If you have studied the symbolism of baptism and the symbolism of the supper, when you come to water baptism, you're confessing, I'm not ashamed to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you come to partake of the supper, you are confessing that you understand the gospel that Jesus died for our sins. And that his body was broken, his blood was shed. And that as often as you do that, you do it as a remembrance unto him until he comes again. Now you learned of the gospel through two forms. The word preached and the symbol of the gospel, the ordinances which he has left to his church. But I want to caution you. The saving power of the gospel, now are you with me? Is not deposited in either of these forms. The saving power of the gospel is made effectual by the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. Preaching alone will not bring you into vital union with Christ. Being baptized and taking of the Lord's Supper is not powerful enough to join you to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that while it has pleased God to reveal the gospel through the foolishness of the word of preaching and through the ordinances of the church, the power of the gospel is not confined in either of these agencies. So that no preacher, priest, or ordinance can so harness the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he can say, come through me and I will put you in touch with the grace of God. Now, beloved, whether you be an individual is a Protestant preacher or whether he's a Roman Catholic priest, he cannot say through his preaching that he has saved anybody. Do you see it? Grace is not imparted through oratorical deliverance. It is a means wherein a person is brought in contact with the gospel, but it is bound up in the electing power of God the Holy Spirit as to whether or not to make that grace effectual and personal in the life of the hearer. Therefore, here is a church filled with people, all lost, and the preacher preaches a given message all hear the same words, but they become gospel only to certain people 
in that congregation? Why did they become effectual to those and their but sounding brass and tinkling cymbal to the other? The effectual, sanctifying influence of the Spirit of God taking the proclaimed word and making it in power. Now we come to the ordinance of baptism. We come to the ordinance of the supper. Why is it that here we have a church and let's say we partake of the ordinance of the supper and God comes in a unique way upon some and Christ becomes real to them as they partake of that supper. And I don't know about you, but there are times in which I partake of the supper and Christ becomes more and more real to me. There are other times I partake of it and it's just so much mechanics. You find that to be true? What's the difference? God is pleased in some cases to make effectual that ordinance to where Christ becomes more real to you. In other cases, he passes it by. He passes it by. Why? So that we do not get to putting our faith in any preacher or in any ordinance. Our faith is in the power of the gospel as made effectual by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I'm glad it's that way, frankly. I'm very glad it's that way. Because I know that there's enough pride in preachers running around claiming that they saved so many people. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Somebody preaches a message. They go to a conference somewhere. Somebody asks, how's your church doing? I saved ten people last Sunday. What do they mean? What do they mean? That's pure paganism. That's Romanism written all over it. Their preaching did not save anybody. The Holy Spirit of God is what does the saving. And he's pleased to reveal the gospel through the ordinance of preaching, through the ordinance of baptism, through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But it's the power of God in the gospel by the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. For the basis for this, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The apostle states, Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of what? Your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much, what? Assurance. Now hear me carefully, my people. I cannot impart to you one ounce of spirituality. And I cannot impart to you one ounce of assurance that you're one of the elect or that you have partaken of the ministry of the Spirit of God. For the Scripture says, The Spirit beareth witness with your spirit, or our spirit, that we are the children of God. Therefore, it is not my role as a gospel minister to try to go around and give everybody assurance of salvation. That's the Spirit of God's role to do that. I dare not intrude into His office. 
In the Old Testament, there was a prophet, there was a priest, and there was a king. And those were not to intrude into each other's offices unless they were authorized divinely by God. I'm but a preacher of the gospel. I am no more in God's hands than that water and those elements of wine and bread. That's all I am in the hands of God. And I am to portray the gospel. But if you want to have assurance of your personal salvation, that's going to have to come from God, the Holy Spirit, making the preaching of the gospel true and effectual to you. Now let me go a little bit further before I close. It is normally God's pattern to give assurance of your salvation as you put yourself in the path of the gospel. Hmm? You want to get killed? You want to commit suicide? Put yourself in the path of a train. You want assurance that God has saved you and forgive you of your sins? Hang out where the gospel's preached. Hmm? Put yourself in the path of the gospel. You run out here in the cornfield somewhere and stay away from the public preaching of the gospel, from the reading of the word, not much likelihood that God's going to save you. He does some like that. But normally his means of saving his people is through the preaching of the gospel. Get where that's at. Find out where the gospel's being preached. And put yourself as the people did in the New Testament. Wasn't that what Zacchaeus did? Hmm? Wasn't that what old blind Barmaeus did? They heard where Jesus was going. And they placed themselves in the path where he was traveling. Do you want to be assured that God has done and might do a work of divine grace and regeneration in your life, then put yourself in the path where he normally works at. Now we're going to conclude there tonight, and next Sunday evening, or our next setting, the Lord willing, we're going to take all the passages in the New Testament which the sacramentarian says teaches baptismal regeneration and do an exposition of those passages such as Mark 16, Acts 2.38, and uh, several others, to, to really see whether those passages actually teach baptismal regeneration or not. Pray for us and for yourself as we assemble under the sound of his word. Let's pray.